2: Hello everybody and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler. Today we'll be talking with John W.I. Lee, author of the book The First Black Archaeologist, A Life of John Wesley Gilbert. How are you doing today?
1: Uh, I'm doing great, Deidre. It's great to be here and thank you for having me on your podcast.
2: Thank you for coming. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
1: Okay. Uh, Well, I am a professor of history uh, at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Uh, I am originally from Hawaii, but I have been here in Santa Barbara for 22 years. Uh, And my main field is actually ancient history. Uh, I uh, usually write Um, and publish about ancient Greece and Achaemenid Persia, which is the first empire of ancient Persia. Uh, And I I became interested in Professor Gilbert's story um, really by chance, uh, because I was looking for a side project to distract me uh, from a very difficult slog through some uh, secondary literature on ancient Persia. Uh, And I realized that Professor Gilbert and I had been students at the same school, Uh, which is the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. It's a a research institution uh, in Athens, Greece, uh, that was founded in 1881.
2: Now, I thought this was interesting. When you talked about um, Gilbert as a seven-year-old, you found a Friedman's bank account. Tell us about that story and his teacher.
1: Oh, that a—it really is a wonderful story—and I start the book um, with the story of a young boy going to the Augusta branch uh, of the Freedmen's Bank to to open open an account, uh, and I was really uh, I was led to that material um, with the help of one of my colleagues, a 19th century U.S. historian who's done a lot of work with these documents. As I mentioned, uh, I. Um, I, my main field is ancient history, so I, I got a lot of help from, from colleagues who work in the modern world. And I became fascinated with this document because it had um, it had young John Wesley Gilbert's own handwriting on it. Um, and I looked through all the records of the, uh, the Freedmen's Bank for Augusta, and I was able to, to find a pattern where uh, young Gilbert's teacher, uh, Miss Cecilia Chestnut, was taking her students apparently to the bank uh, about once a week because bank accounts of students uh, that were associated with her were being opened there about, about once, uh, once a week. So I surmise that, that she took them down to the bank and helped them open uh, their accounts. And then for Gilbert's own life story, this, these bank account registers uh, list the, the names of relatives. Uh, and that was sort of my first clue into finding uh, his family origins because his account register listed not just his teacher, but it listed his mother's name and the names of his uncles. And I was able to take those names and work backwards uh, into uh, the times of slavery and find those names in slave owners documents. Uh, And and, in that way to trace Gilbert's family and his ancestors, actually all the way back to the 18, uh, 1820s, I was able to do that.
2: Now in 1873, what happened with uh, John Wesley Gilbert's account and other accounts?
1: So there there was, and uh, some listeners of your podcast may know this, there was a financial crisis uh, in the United States. And uh, the Freedmen's Bank um, had been very successful, uh, but it also had suffered from poor management and speculative investing. Uh, and as a result of that 1873 crisis, uh, the bank eventually had to shut its doors. Uh, and by 1874, the depositors, most of them, had lost all of their all of their savings. And for Gilberts, you know, for young Gilbert and his family, this was a really, I think, a, a, a very difficult blow because they must have have put their savings into this account. Uh, many uh, many families did, uh, and. Perhaps both of his, um, his mother and, and his stepfather had also deposited their earnings there, and they did not have a way to, to get that money uh, back after the collapse of the bank.
2: Now, you talked about a slogan in the book, we are rising. What did that
1: mean? Uh yes that the, the, the slogan we are rising appears in several uh different uh forms the most famous uh famous most famous instance of this excuse me uh, is when uh general o o howard who um, was a leader of uh the uh, freedmen's uh bureau and and efforts to advance post civil war black education uh in the south visited a school in atlanta and he asked the young uh the the, the children there who were Uh, I guess, elementary school, middle school uh, students, what shall I tell the children in the North about you? Uh, And a young boy stood up and said, tell them we are rising. Uh, By which he meant we are rising into knowledge uh, and into education. And this became a a rallying cry uh, for young and old, for men and women, for boys and girls, uh, for all African-Americans after the war who were seeking uh, to gain an education, uh, and into the 1890s, we find this term uh, as a as a slogan. We find it in poetry, and sermons, uh, and elsewhere.
2: Now, you, you had a story about a black student who was shot in December of 1870. Why is this significant in telling the story of John Wesley Gilbert?
1: Oh, yes, that's a very it's a terrible story uh, uh the, the the student was a student at a school uh in augusta called the augusta institute and it had been uh this augusta institute had been set up um with the sponsorship of northern uh, baptist the american baptist home mission uh society and the school had been fairly successful uh, and had found a location right in the center of augusta it had support from uh, some of the leading members of augusta's uh, population both black and white Baptists uh, but the assassination of this student who his teacher called him a dear devoted inoffensive man um, I ref- reflects I think the the feeling of other Augustans that that education uh, and especially the kind of higher education that Augusta Institute uh, was offering uh, was not something that that they wanted to see black people uh, having and this uh, uh, the killing um, of uh, this student um, resulted in the temporary closure of the school as the the, uh, the white professor had to flee town. Um, and it wouldn't be till, until sometime later that a, a South Carolinian, a man named Joseph Thomas Robert, would, would be able to reopen uh, the school and to uh, continue uh, educating uh, African-American students as preachers and as teachers.
2: Now, his life at Payne College... Tell us a little about his life there.
1: So uh, Payne College began as Payne Institute. Uh, in it, it opened its doors in 1884, and it, it was and is a, a very unique institution in that, from the beginning, it was a cooperative, interracial uh, venture uh, of Black Methodists and and white uh, Methodists. Uh, and Gilbert came to the Payne Institute uh, after he had he had attended Augusta Institute. I mentioned that school. Um, Augusta Institute uh, moved to Atlanta, where it eventually became, uh, uh, it's the ancestor essentially of Morehouse College, uh, but Gilbert could not stay in Atlanta. So he came back to Augusta and he had uh, no real options for, uh, for further education. So he recalled this time as a, a very dark time in the early 1880s when he despaired of, of achieving a liberal education. Uh, and then Payne opened up and he found a way uh, he found a way forward. Uh, and he was the first student of Payne uh, Institute. Uh, he was one of the first seven graduates, uh, which, by the way, there were more women in the seven. There were four, I think four women and three men in the first graduating class, which that itself made um, Payne unusual, that it was co-educational uh, from the start. Uh, in 1888, he became the first black professor at Payne, uh, And he Lived his, his career, much of his career was focused on, on pain, uh, which became Payne College in uh, 1903, and of course still exists today uh, as Payne College. So his, his life and his work were deeply um, tied together with the life and the prosperity of this, of this school.
2: Now, the day he received the scholarship, tell us about the process that he went through to receive the scholarship to go to Brown.
1: Oh, uh, um, you may have to edit this part out because uh, I, at the moment, I cannot remember the, the exact parts of it, but let me start again so you can, I'll get a little break so you can, um, you can edit that, that hiccup out. Um, in order to attend Brown University, uh, John Wesley Gilbert needed funding uh, and funding was available in the form of scholarships uh, through Brown. There were various scholarships that had been endowed, uh, but he had to take entrance exams uh, which included uh classical languages, Greek and Latin, uh modern languages, French, uh, and also other uh, uh, topics including I think mathematics uh, and English. and he did well enough on those entrance exams in the fall of eighteen eighty six that he was able to have a scholarship uh that uh, paid his tuition for for Brown. Uh, University, We actually have in the Brown archives, I was able to find uh, the receipts for some of the scholarship checks that he received, um, which is a very neat little little detail. But as many students uh, who get scholarships will know, that money wasn't enough to pay for everything. So he also worked. Uh, And he recalls later on that he did things uh, as widespread as shoveling snow in the winter because Brown University is in Providence where there were some very big snowstorms while he was there. Uh, He he tutored students uh, and he did the account books for a local a local barbershop in the the, in the uh, in the city of of Providence. So he did all sorts of things in order to make uh, money to pay for his room and board. And his mother seems to have sent him some money from home uh, and his Payne institute professor, uh, a man named George Williams Walker, who was a white Methodist minister. Uh, and who, uh, with whom Gilbert worked closely for basically his entire life at Payne, um, Reverend Walker also sent uh, a small amount of money to help John Wesley Gilbert get through Brown.
2: Now, when he decided to marry, do you see that as uh, marrying into a middle-class Black family, and what was the importance of that?
1: uh, Gilbert's relationship with his wife, um, Osceola Pleasant, or Ola Pleasant, um, is really fascinating because uh, John Winston Gilbert himself came from a a background that was very, very obscure. It's very difficult to find uh, information about, uh, for example, his mother's uh, life, except that Gilbert himself talked about uh, being raised or nursed in the arms of poverty. Uh, But Ola Pleasant's family, on the other hand, was part of... uh, a higher socioeconomic uh, status group uh, of black people in the city of of Augusta. So members of her family owned property. Uh, Some of them uh, were free before the Civil War. Um, They had family resources uh, in a way that Gilbert did not when he was was growing up. Uh, So certainly uh, Gilbert's uh, marriage to Ola uh, was for him a marrying up, but I also think it was a marriage of the of the minds, I guess, because she was also interested in education, and she uh, studied at Fisk University in Nashville uh, and she also worked as a teacher um, so I, I think they they had a their personal relationship I think was founded on their their shared interest in teaching and education uh, and I even have found an instance where they went to a, a teacher's conference together, which I think is quite interesting.
2: Robert Rules of Order. Tell us about that in John Wesley Gilbert.
1: Yes, uh, that is a. Uh, uh, the Robert's, the story of Robert's Rules of Order is a, quite an interesting one. Uh, I mentioned that the Augusta Institute, which later uh, became the ancestor of, of Morehouse College, um, was led by a, a South Carolinian, uh, a white South Carolinian named Joseph Thomas Robert. Uh, now, Robert had been a slave owner, but he was. Uh, he developed very strong anti-slavery convictions. And as he entered the ministry, uh, he freed his slaves, and he eventually he moved uh, his family north to Iowa because he didn't want his, his children to grow up where there was slavery. Uh, but much of his family uh, fought for the Confederacy, and some of them were very strongly pro-Confederacy, including uh, uh, J.T. Roberts, own, uh, his own wife, But there was one exception, uh, which was Robert's, uh, J.T. Robert's son, uh, Henry uh, Robert, uh, Henry Martin Robert, who was a West Point graduate and who fought in the Union Army. Uh, And in the 1870s, uh, H.M. Robert published a book of. Uh, rules for parliamentary procedure and of uh, uh, guidelines for public speaking and public oratory. And that was the first edition of the book that we know today as Robert's Rules of Order. Uh, And H.M. Robert gave, uh, it seems, uh, maybe about 10% of the first print run of Robert's Rules of Order to his father. And uh, his father used it as a book for students uh, in uh, uh, possibly in Augusta, but certainly in in Atlanta. So, uh, to bring the story back to John Wesley Gilbert, that means that John Wesley Gilbert and his fellow students uh, at Augusta Institute and Atlanta Baptist Seminary, the ancestors of Morehouse, were among the very first Americans. Uh, of any race or any back background to use what is today, I think, an iconic handbook um, that is, the, you know, the Robert's Rules of Order are used widely throughout the country. And, and Gilbert was one of the first people to uh, to use that book. And it also explains, I think, why he was such a good public speaker, that from early on he had a lot of practice uh, in parliamentary debate and the rules of procedure, uh, and that is connected with his, his, his use of Robert's Rules. Now,
2: you talk about George William Walker. Was he really like a mentor to John Gilbert's life?
1: Yes. Uh, So, George Williams Walker, uh, also a South Carolinian, is a really fascinating. Uh, figure. He came from a very prominent family uh, in the uh, White Methodist denomination uh, called the Methodist Episcopal Church South, or MECCS. Uh, that denomination, by the way, doesn't uh, no longer exists independently today. It uh, was absorbed into what uh, is today the United Methodist Church. Uh, but George Williams Walker, uh, he studied uh, to be a, a minister. Uh, and he was ordained, but he had a real skill for languages. Uh, he was—he loved to read Greek for fun. Uh, he loved English literature, especially Shakespeare. And in 1884, he became uh, one of the very first professors of Payne Institute. Uh, just at the time when John Wesley Gilbert was becoming the school's uh, first student, and these two men. Uh, appear to have have become uh, uh, close very very quickly I think Walker recognized that Gilbert had a gift for languages uh, that he had a drive for education uh, and for the next several decades they would work uh, very closely together first as teacher and student uh, then as colleagues uh, mm-hmm. in 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 Payne Institute and Payne College basically until the time that Walker Walker died uh, in in 1911 mm-hmm. uh, and Walker undertook his his uh his efforts at pain in the face of of a lot of opposition even from his family a a story that i tell in the book uh is that uh, walker's mother said it's a noble work you were doing uh with this school but i wish that some other mother's son were doing it and can you imagine being a mother and telling that to your to your son Uh, walker's fiance said if you don't quit working at pain we'll we'll um our engagement is over and he said okay well um uh, our engagement is over, and he continued to work at, at Payne, And not just John Wesley Gilbert, but I, I virtually, not, without exception, every account I've read from a Payne graduate or a, a, an alumna or alumnus recalling uh, Walker in later years is, uh, without exception, praises him um, as a man who lived the highest standards of education uh, and who believed in, in true, true equality uh, for all people.
2: Now, how did he get to Greece? What was that story?
1: Ah, okay. Uh, these are great, Deidre. By the way, these are great questions. You are we are going <laughs> systematically through the book. Thank you. Uh, and um, I hope I'm not speaking too quickly or giving you too much or too little detail. So you let me know if if I need more. Just right. Okay, terrific. So, um, how John Wesley Gilbert uh, was. A student at Brown University from 1886 to 1888. And uh, during that time, he formed a close tie with his Greek professor, a professor named Albert Harkness, who uh, nobody has heard of Albert Harkness today. But in the 1870s, he was extremely famous uh, as a Greek scholar. He was a leading academic in the US. And Albert Harkness was also a, a founding member of a new research institution, Uh, in Athens, Greece. And it was called the American School of Classical Studies at Athens. Uh, And the American School had been founded in 1881 by basically a consortium of American Northeastern U.S. colleges and universities to send Americans to Greece where they could do uh, research in in classical languages, um, Greek literature, uh, archaeology, and, and history, uh, and so it was through Albert Harkness that John Wesley Gilbert first learned about the possibility of going uh, going to Greece. Uh, but in the 1880s, you know, Greece was a long, long way away from the United States. Um, nobody went there for tourism. Uh, if you think about Greece today, it's sun and sand and beaches in the summertime. Um, that was there was no tourist industry. Uh, it was a it was a long and difficult trip Um and if Americans traveled uh, to Europe, they, they typically went to Western Europe and to Italy, or they might go all the way to Egypt uh, or to Constantinople. But they rarely stopped in Greece. It was it was not a common destination. Uh, and Gilbert must have talked with uh, with Albert Harkness at Brown, and they kept in touch when Gilbert returned to Augusta to take up his job at Payne Institute. Uh, but eventually, Harkness was able to find funding, a fellowship uh, from Brown University that would enable uh, John Wesley Gilbert to go to Greece and spend an academic year there uh, as a member of the American American school. And that's what Gilbert did in, in 1890 uh, to 1891. And that made him the first African-American student of the American school, but also one of the first 50 Americans of any background uh, uh, or any uh, 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 any background or any ethnicity or any race, any gender, in fact, um, to go to Greece and to do professional uh, scholarly work there.
2: I thought it was very interesting in how he described himself on the passport. No straight. Tell us about that. Was that telling us something about his identity?
1: That is a a, a terrific question about his passport. And you'll have to excuse me. I'm going to sneeze for a moment. Uh. It's allergy season out here in in California. So uh, in the 1890s, when John Wesley Gilbert went to Greece, uh, passports were still not required. And in fact, many travelers went without them. But the American school recommended to its students, I think, that they get passports because they were useful uh, for a place that was off the beaten track uh, like Greece. Uh, And when Gilbert filled out his passport application... In 1890, there were no photographs that went with the passports. That would come. That would come later, and instead, there was a series of, of boxes that asked the applicant to describe physical features: uh, nose, eyes, skin color, hair color, hair, uh, and so on. Uh, and in filling out those uh, those boxes, Gilbert uh, was. Writing responses that reflected his own self-perception of who he was, but he also had to keep in mind the um, responses of a clerk off in Washington D.C. who might have a racial racial response based upon what he listed uh, in those. Uh, listed in those in those boxes um, and the one that drew my attention particularly in the book um, is there was a space that that asked uh, that had a blank t- uh, before a description of I was born um, and my father is a blank citizen and usually applicants either wrote a native or naturalized citizen and it was I think the question was intended to Mm-hmm. Uh, to ask about citizenship status, but in that box in his 1890 application, Gilbert wrote uh, "native white citizen," uh, and I go into this question at some length in my in in the book. Why did he write that? Um, did it reflect something new he had learned about his father, uh, his biological father, uh, in the years uh, since uh, he had been a, been a child? Um, because he had had two stepfathers. Uh, his his mother had married twice: uh, once when he was young, and once right before he went, right after he went to, to Brown. Uh, but that's the only time that this mention appears. And in his later uh, later passport applications, Gilbert never mentions uh, uh, never mentions um, the race of his uh, of his father. And by the time he dies, the legend has appeared that um, his parents are Gabriel. And Sarah Gilbert, um, who were uh, are both uh, who had uh, both been uh, been enslaved, uh, but in fact the name Gabriel we can identify as one of his one of his uncles. So that doesn't seem to have been uh, the actual name of his biological uh, father, but a, a legend that appeared later in his life. So it's a it's a very complex story about passports and identity uh, and what Gilbert expected um, that a clerk in Washington might read into uh, his responses on on this form.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, once he got to Greece, you talk about there were two
2: accounts of his treatment regarding his race. Which one do you think would, would be the one to accurately describe? His treatment.
1: So I think the episode you're at, you're, you're asking about is um, about 10 years after Gilbert was in Greece. um, George Williams Walker was speaking at, at a conference uh, in the United States, uh, a missionary conference. And in that speech, he, he mentions that Gilbert got to Athens and met prejudice and was not allowed to, to live in the American school, uh, American school building, um, but that Gilbert was not disappointed by this. And instead he went and lived with a Greek family and, and got a Greek grammar and and learn, learn the language. Um, now that story is from 10 years after, after Gilbert's visit to Greece. Uh, and it's in a speech where, where Walker also misremembers the other, other aspects of, of Gilbert's uh, time in Greece. So the question I raise in my book is, you know, how much can we, um, How accurate is this story uh, and how how much uh, can we look to contemporary evidence about his 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 actual um, living situation in Athens? And against this later story uh, by by George Williams Walker, uh, we have to put Gilbert's sponsorship uh, by Albert Harkness, uh, who was very eager to have a brown student to be at the American school. Uh, We have to put the general leadership of the American school, uh, which at this time was uh, led by an older generation of men, some who had been very active in the abolition movement and others who had had black students at their schools. Uh, and, and, And we also have to consider the position of Gilbert's professor. Uh, a man named Rufus Richardson from Dartmouth uh, uh, from Dartmouth College and in his his private letters Rufus Richardson treats Gilbert just as the other three students who are there uh, and there's no indication either from Richardson's private correspondence uh, or from a later account by one of the of Gilbert's classmates that any distinction was made about uh, made about Gilbert and I, I again I go into this in, in some in some detail in the story but I think a plausible explanation is that Gilbert got to the American school early before it was open. And this happened to another student, Andrew Fossum. And the caretaker said, you can't stay here, you have to go away. Uh, And Gilbert found a room in Athens. And that's exactly what happened to Andrew Fossum. And I think that a likely explanation is that Walker may have misremembered uh, something Gilbert wrote him in 1890, and then told it told the story in a different way. uh, At that conference in in 1901, uh, because the story of his being excluded from the American school building really doesn't stack up against uh, the contemporary evidence we have for the school's leadership uh, and the private documents, uh, private letters that we have uh, from from the professor at that time.
2: What was John Gilbert's best find in Greece?
1: Ah, that's a wonderful question. So when people think about archaeology, they, and especially if they're not familiar with the, the world of scientific archaeology, they are likely to think of, you know, finds as treasure, right? Something gold, um, a marble statue, um, uh, painted pottery. And, and in his work at the ancient Greek city of Eretria, uh, Gilbert, in fact, did uh, take part in the discovery of many such items. Um, part of the American school's work at Eretria was to excavate uh, tombs that had gold jewelry and had fine pottery and they found pieces of sculpture. But actually his greatest find was not that at all, but it was um, a a find that he made along with his white classmate, John Picard, uh, was about the topography and the history of the ancient city of Eretria. Um, Ancient authors, uh, especially the ancient geographer, a a, a geographer named Strabo, had suggested that Eretria had been moved, that the city had moved uh, over time. But what Gilbert and Picard found through their careful study of the city walls and the other remains of, of the ancient city was that the city appears to have always been on the same site. In other words, uh, the, the, ancient geographer had gotten something wrong about the story. Uh, and they made that conclusion in 1891, uh, after their, their, their survey, Gilbert and Picard did, and the Greek and Swiss excavations that have continued, uh, since the 1960s have shown that they were right in their essentials, that, um, Eretria did not move locations, uh, during the historic period. And so it's, uh, in that sense, his greatest find is not an object, um, but it's a clearer understanding of, of the, the, the location of this ancient city of Eretria.
2: While in Greece, he had a major family event to occur. What does this tell us about the dedication of his family to his work?
1: Yes, well, wh- either either just before he left for Greece, or while he in the fall, he he learned that he was going to be a father for the second uh, time. So at the time that that John Wesley Gilbert left for Greece, he and, and his wife Ola already had a had a young daughter. Um, she wasn't walking yet, I think. Um, but he learned that they would have another another child, uh, and that the child was due in the in the early spring of eighteen ninety one. And uh, I. Uh, in my book, I suggest that this is one of the reasons why he felt a, a bit of time pressure in Greece because he knew that uh, he had another child coming. He would need to um, to support uh, his growing family. Um, he wanted to be back there, uh, perhaps in time for the child's uh, the child's birth, and it meant that his possibility of spending, you know, two years in Athens, which at, at, at one point um, it was thought he might spend two years there instead of one year. Uh, that he'd have to get a lot of work done, uh, uh, done quickly, and I think that ex- that helps to explain um, why he was so focused on his work while he was in Greece, because he, this was the time of his life where we'd have to do scholarship and to, to uh, work through the reading list he had been assigned for his graduate studies at Brown University. Uh, and he knew that when he finished that list and he got that master's degree from Brown, um, it would be a great achievement. It would open the way to higher pay, maybe to new job opportunities. Uh, and so the, 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 the fact of his growing family, I think, um, uh, Pushed Gilbert to be even more focused and dedicated than he than he normally uh, was, and he was a pretty, I mean, he was a very, very dedicated and very focused individual uh, when it came to education, as we can see going back all the way to his his Freedman's Bank uh, record.
2: Tell the audience about his publishing history.
1: Uh, He has Gilbert has a well, maybe the first thing I would tell the audience about Professor Gilbert's publishing history is that uh, we do not have uh, the entirety of what he what he published, because he certainly wrote uh, uh, articles and essays that were destroyed uh, either when the archives of of uh, Payne College uh, were burned in 1968 or some of the archives were burned or that were published in African-American newspapers in Georgia that don't survive for us. And the, the key, the crucial one is the Georgia Baptist, um, which was an Augusta-based newspaper. It was highly respected, but the issues for the 1880s have almost all perished, and the issues when he was in Greece uh, have perished. So we don't have the entirety of what he wrote. Uh, but we do have a wide range of publication, um, starting with an essay he wrote at Brown uh, on Shakespeare uh, and uh, the authorship of Shakespeare's plays, which shows his interest in English literature. Uh, we have uh, letters he wrote from Greece that survive as quotations in, uh, in other newspapers uh, beyond Georgia. Uh, we have uh, a report that he wrote that was published in uh, the American Journal of Archeology, span which is a flagship journal uh, of of American archaeological study and he was the first african-american author uh, to be published in that scholarly journal uh, and then in the rest of his life we have um, a large number and a very varied number of of speeches uh, and essays uh, and articles about about topics everything from education uh, to advocacy for for civil rights uh, uh, in the in Georgia and the United States and uh, and later, uh, he has uh, uh, we have things he wrote based on his experience as a missionary in in the what was then the Belgian Congo. Uh, in the nineteen around 1915, he was uh, becoming interested in in sociology and sociological questions of urban health and housing. Um, so, although we do not have everything he wrote, um, here was a scholar of classics uh, who, who wrote about things Greek and and. Uh, mostly Greek, uh, maybe a little bit less Roman, um, who was interested in English literature, who wrote about Shakespeare, uh, who wrote about uh, topics of the day, and was an advocate for his community uh, uh, and for African Americans at a national level, uh, and who wrote about his experiences as as a missionary. So it's a fragmentary record, but it really shows him writing in many different uh, different areas uh, of of his endeavors.
2: Now, the mission work in Africa and the legend that he contracted sleep sickness. Tell us about that.
1: So after Gilbert uh, passed away in 1923, the story went around uh, mm-hmm. that he had succumbed to to sleeping sickness. And there are actually two different forms. There, there, there are two different types of sleeping sickness. Um, trip, I'm going to pronounce it trypanosomiasis. So the the West African form can actually, it is possible, I did some research in medical journals, um, it's possible for people to be um, bitten by the fly, which carries this disease, uh, and then to carry the disease for quite a long time before showing symptoms. And and Gilbert, the separation between the time Gilbert was in Africa in 1911, 1912, and the time that he began to be ill around 1919—that's um, at the very outside edge of what I was able to read about the you know time between exposure and, and falling ill. Uh, but this story uh, was repeated by by a number of people, including uh, John Hope, um, who had been a student of Gilbert's um, and is famous uh, as a Southern educational leader, um, the first Black president of Morehouse uh, Morehouse College. Um, and Hope, as a young man, had known, had known Gilbert, but they hadn't been close in later life. So Hope was one of the people who, who mentioned this story. But what I found in my book was another story, and a story that, that was not preserved in the, the tradition, um, was that uh, John Wesley Gilbert and Ola had a, had a car, and they loved to go driving. And they would drive, uh, drive in Georgia for um, a relaxation, for recreation, to tour the countryside. And they got in a car accident. And the car accident was so bad that that Ola had an arm amputated. She was in the hospital for two weeks. And I close my book by by noting that Gilbert also seemed to have suffered some effects from this. Because if you look at his handwriting in the the, the surviving um, trustees minutes of Payne College, you can see his handwriting begins to to deteriorate. And um, it seems to indicate that he suffered some sort of of after effect of that car crash maybe you know a blow to the head a traumatic brain injury Um, i'm not a physician obviously so i can't diagnose him but uh, it seems like something happened to him after that car crash which was so terrible for his for his wife uh as well and after that time he he you know he had brief moments where he recovered but then he went downhill uh, and by 1921, he was confined to bed and unable to speak, and he spent uh, almost two years um, uh, in that situation before he finally passed away. Um, and so that is a less, I mean, I can Tell My Book, it was, I think, an unknown story, but I think that um, it's possible that sleeping sickness affected him. But I think we have to consider the car crash uh, as a, a perhaps a more likely uh, candidate for what afflicted him in his final years.
2: What message do you hope your reader will
1: gain by reading this book? Uh, What message do I hope my reader will gain from this book? That is a great uh, question. I think the first thing is to appreciate uh, the life of a man who lived uh, in a time where he, as a boy, he was discounted. Nobody thought that this little boy deserved an education. Uh, nobody thought that he should be anything more than a manual laborer uh, or a, a, a cart driver or some other, some other occupation. Um, and in the face of, of racism and segregation and violence, which, by the way, increased as his life went on. I mean, the 1870s and 1880s were a period when Jim Crow had not set in. Um, in the face of all these obstacles, uh, here is a, a, a person who persisted, um, who had a drive for learning, a drive for, uh, drive for education um, that took him from these very humble beginnings uh, and from uh, the legacy of slavery into the, the pinnacle of American education. I mean, he was at Brown. He was at the American school. These were, you know, the national uh, he was at the national uh, edge of education and classical um, studies and he wasn't just a scholar. I think beyond that, you know, he was deeply devoted to his community, uh, and to his church. Uh, and he was a, a humble person from the accounts that we have who had friends of all different social ranks and classes. Uh, and he, he believed deeply in in service. Uh, and that shows in his work at Payne college, uh, shows in his missionary endeavors, his civil rights work and so on. Um, uh, so, if you look at his, you know, at, at Gilbert as an individual, um, I hope the, the the lesson or the story that I hope readers will get from my book is just to be inspired by someone um, who faced these terrible challenges, um, who was constrained by the society around him, yet nonetheless achieved, and he also helped others uh, to achieve. And I think it's a truly inspiring uh, story in that in that regard. Um, you know, at a wider level, I I have said this. Um, uh in in other venues. But Gilbert's story is at some some in some respect not unusual because he's part of this Civil War and post-Civil War generation. You mentioned the, you know, the, the, the slogan, We Are Rising, right? Uh, where black people across uh the the country, young and old, men and women, boys and girls, um, were striving for education. And his story is one particular Example of that, we can see it in the the story of historically black colleges and universities, mm-hmm. um, and I hope that readers will appreciate that this movement of black education is really it's it's one of the greatest generations you might say uh, that our country has has ever produced, and those who know the story of HBCUs. Uh, already know about these achievements um but i think it deserves more uh, wider recognition um as an incredibly it's an extraordinary and inspiring um as a truly moving uh, achievement um uh in the united states well we've taken up a lot of your
2: time what's the next project you'll be working on
1: <laughs> well um uh, I, I'm, I'm staying involved with the community in Augusta. And so, uh, there are some, uh, some projects I'd like to do there that involve looking further at the Freedmen's Bank records. Uh, and I mentioned at the start of our conversation that I'm also an ancient historian, so I have to get back to the Persian empire and I have some things to work on, uh, about the, uh, Persian Prince Cyrus and a, a work called the Anabasis of Xenophon, which, by the way, is a Greek text that Professor Gilbert taught every year. It was one of his standard texts, uh, Xenophon. Uh, so those are and I have many different interests. I think my next project is to spend uh, more time with my family. This was six years of really, really hard work where I was working all weekend and I have three young children. And so um, I want to put the, uh, put my, my wife and my family Um, first, uh, uh, first above any other scholarly projects for a while.
2: Well, we enjoyed this project and we'd be looking forward to others. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you so much, Deirdre, for having me. It's really been a pleasure speaking with you.